One of the books I read uh, for this message started by sharing an example that happened during the riots in Los Angeles after the first Rodney King verdict. Rodney King, you'll remember, uh, was a black man who was stopped and beaten by white police officers. And they were initially found not guilty of any crime. And the city erupted. And in the ensuing riots, you may remember the news coverage of a man, Reginald Denny, being dragged from his truck at an intersection and being beaten by a ragtag gang. Well, after his slow recovery, he met with his attackers. He shook their hands and he forgave them. And a reporter who was present couldn't help but write, it is said that Mr. Denny is suffering from brain damage. And the authors finished this, song, uh, this story by saying, can we agree that forgiveness is an outrageous human act? In our society, where might is right, a society of a myriad of victims, each licking his or her cherished wounds, forgiveness seems crazy. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to pray for God to forgive us our sins or debts and calls us to be crazy and pray and live out as we forgive those who sin against us, as we forgive other people's debts to us. And that is what we're looking at today. And the series of messages between Easter and Pentecost this year is called Teach Us to Pray, the Lord's Prayer as a Model for Prayer and for Life. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer. Teach us to pray comes from Luke's account where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray as John the Baptist was teaching his disciples. And the model for prayer and for life comes from the reading that we had today of Matthew's account where Jesus places his prayer in the very centre of the Sermon on the Mount where he is teaching his disciples what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And for us with Today's message focusing on forgiving, it's important to note that this follows on from a section where Jesus had spoken of not taking revenge, where Jesus had spoken of loving your enemies before dealing with spiritual practices like prayer. And this petition comes in the prayer after we had started by addressing God as our Father, acknowledging that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. After praying that God's name would be made holy, his kingdom would come and his will be done. After praying that God would provide our daily physical needs. Now it moves on to asking God to meet our spiritual needs. Our need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with one another. And then on to ask for strength to resist evil and continue to walk following Jesus. And this sets our agenda for prayer, focusing first on worshipping God, first on God's purposes and plans, then our needs. Jesus finishes his section in the Sermon on the Mount on finances by saying, put first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And we see that in the way in which Jesus taught us to pray. The placing of our daily physical needs before our spiritual needs reflects the fact that people cannot be expected to address the higher issues in their life if they are without the basics to live on. 
Abraham Maslow in 1943 came up with what is known as the hierarchy of human needs theory. And all those of you who have done education and a whole lot of other things will be sort of sweating and hoping there isn't a test on this. But Maslow postulated that you could only start addressing the higher needs in humans, which he defined of in terms of love and belonging, self-worth and articulation. And that's where you'd fit in that connecting with God when you had met people's safety needs and physiological needs. Needs like food and water, the basics of life. And the book of James puts it like this. What good is it to say, God bless you, and send the poor away empty-handed. The other reason, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, fits in where it does in the Lord's Prayer, is because it is as we realise that God is holy, we become aware that we are definitely not. As we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we become aware of how we have done what God tells us not to do. And that we have left undone what God calls us to do. When we pray, give us today our daily bread, we become aware of how much we have focused on our own wants and our own excesses. How we have failed to help answer that prayer for the people in need around us. We become profoundly aware of our need for forgiveness. Our sin and sinfulness. So we bring that to God in prayer. Let's have a look at the first part of this petition. Forgive us our debts or our sins. Matthew's gospel uses the word debt. We have a debt we cannot pay to God because of our sin. Luke's gospel uses the word sin, which has the idea of missing the mark. We have fallen short, far short, of all God has commanded us to do. And many of you will probably be used to the older English word, trespasses. And I know many of you said, why aren't we using the word trespasses anymore when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Which is the translation of the word Matthew uses at the end of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus reiterates the link between being forgiven and forgiving in verse 15. And trespass conveys the idea that we have crossed the line, that we should not have crossed. And all these words try and capture the fact that we have done something wrong. Something that puts us in God's debt. That means that we are worthy of the wrath of a holy God rather than acceptance. But as we pray this prayer, we do so with the hope that God, our Heavenly Father, who is holy, is gracious and good and faithful and just, is able and willing to forgive our wrong if we repent and confess them. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God and justice of God. As we pray this prayer, we also realise that it's Jesus teaching us to pray. Jesus, who throughout the gospel forgave people. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus, who through his death provided a way for us to be forgiven by paying the price that we could not pay for the things that we had done wrong. And when we think of sin, we also usually have the idea of individual sins. But here in this prayer, we pray... Forgive us our sins. And we need to be aware that often sin is a corporate thing as well. Uh, Collectively, our attitudes and our actions. Again, from one of the books I read, um, they brought up the idea of American society being based, its wealth being based 
on uh, slavery in the past and broken treaties with uh, the indigenous people of that country. And, uh, and, and there was a great challenge about the attitudes that underpinned it that were still uh, prevalent in that society. In New Zealand, and it's quite controversial to say this, it may be the ongoing actions and attitudes that come from colonialism. Ouch. Definitely materialism. And you know, the use of forgive us our debt as we forgive the debt of others really speaks to that. Really does. How many of us have forgiven a debt that someone owed us? And what about the collective thing of forgiving the debt of developing countries around the world? A debt they could never hope to repay. That keeps them crippled. And in, uh, yeah. That corporate sin is quite a challenging concept for us to deal with. It shows the fallenness of all humanity and all human institutions, including, sadly, the church. And our ongoing need for Reflection, conviction, confession, and transformation. It's also why I think it's important in our liturgy to have a time of confession to acknowledge our fallenness together and to ask God to forgive us corporately. That's why we had the Lord's Prayer. And afterwards, a passing of the peace, which acknowledges the fact that we have forgiven one another as well. Context of the Lord's Prayer also shows us that confession and asking forgiveness is not so that we can just keep on doing what we've been doing. But rather it's the context of our praying, of our prayer, you know, seeking God's kingdom to come in the here and now. In us and through us. We ask God to forgive us and we look to allow his kingdom to grow and develop. In the end, we are sinners, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of God to forgive us. And the great hope and the great joy is, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103 says God forgives our sin. He um, removes us as far as the west is away from the east. He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. We're all sinners. And the good news behind this prayer is that God forgives. That through Christ we can be put right with God. Well, Let's move on to look at the second phrase in this petition. As we forgive those who have sinned against or who are indebted to us. The first thing is that I want to say about this is that our being forgiven is not conditional on our forgiving others. You know, it's not a conditional thing. Um, I think there's, there's, there's some concern about that. Um, and that goes against the idea of forgiveness from God being a free gift to us solely by grace through Christ. Rather, it shows that the two go hand in hand. The need to be reconciled to God and the need to be reconciled with each other. To love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our minds, uh, all our strength, and to love our neighbour as ourselves. They go together. Um, the two are linked. Jesus told the parable in Matthew 18 in response to the question from Peter, how often do I have to forgive my brother? And, and sounding like he's being very generous and, and pious, seven times? 
And Jesus' response, no, 70 times 7. And you know, it would be hard and it would be ridiculous to keep such an account of wrongs. In the parable, the shocking, outrageous thing is that the servant who has been forgiven so much and goes away rejoicing would suddenly grab a servant who owed him only a little and after hearing the same plea he'd just made to the king, not forgive them, rather throw them in prison till they could pay. To give us some perspective, the amount owed to the master was 600,000 times more than what was owed to the servant. When we realise how much God has forgiven us out of the joy of it, we too forgive. Willamount and Howaras, I hope I've said his name right, sum it up like this. Our forgiveness begins as a response to our being forgiven. It's not so much an act of generosity towards our fellow offending human beings as an act of gratitude towards our forgiving God. The level of how much we are aware of our own forgiveness shows in our forgiving others. I think that was the, at the heart of that parable, the fact that the servant didn't realise how much he'd been forgiven. Forgiveness, however, is a very challenging thing at a practical level. You know, we can often say the words in the Lord's Prayer, but at a practical, real, person-to-person level, it's difficult. And often in Christian circles, it's misunderstood as a cure-all. Forgive them, and everything will be all right, as be as it was before. Well, as I was preparing this message, I was reading a book called Broken Trust, about spiritual abuse and toxic faith and toxic churches. And its author, Remy Diedrich, is very helpful in helping us understand what forgiveness is and looks like on the ground. He defines forgiveness as no longer claiming any right to retaliate or seek revenge. But he also says it's important for us to understand what forgiveness is not. And I'm just going to summarise those things that he said. He says forgiveness is not forgetfulness. You know, forgive and forget. Forgiveness needs the naming and the acknowledgement of the harm and wrong done to you. You can't forgive unless you assign blame for what has been done. You may be able to forget small offences, but we cannot forget deeper wounds. However, forgiveness is there when you can't forget what was done. It breaks the power of that wound around us and over us. He says, forgiveness isn't excusing. You know, people often want us to forgive them because, well, it's a biblical thing to do, so it can be like it never happened. But that can mean that the offending or the abusive behaviour is not faced or addressed in the long run. You can forgive someone and still hold them accountable to make amends. You know, forgiveness is not cheap grace. And some wrong against us will have consequences. And we're seeing that in the moment in some of the megachurch situations that are in the news. That where there's been abuse, that there are consequences. Even if the person is forgiven. Then forgiveness isn't trusting. I think this is important in abusive relationships. Often someone who is abusive will simply want to ask for forgiveness to make things go away but only so they can continue as they have been. It's very much part of the abusive cycle. 
We need to realize that forgiveness is a gift you give. Trust, however, is something that is earned. Forgiveness is immediate, but trust takes time. And Diedrich says, if trust can't be rebuilt, the relationship must change form. Forgiveness is not reunion. Just because we give, forgive someone, we are not under the obligation to resume the relationship. You know, reconciliation when hurt and wrongs have been done is a hard and difficult process. You know, maybe we look at South Africa at the moment. You know, they had the truth and reconciliation, um, uh, you know, uh, tribunal. And there were, was forgiveness given. But if, if you have a look, you know, really working out reconciliation and uh, reunion takes time. It's a hard journey. It does involve forgiveness, but there's so much more. And again, in abusive situations, a person needs to leave to find a safe place to find themselves again. Forgiveness isn't conditional. You know, it's not dependent on a person changing or jumping through my hoops. It's given as a gift. It's not, I will forgive if. Um, it's simply, I will forgive. And lastly, forgiveness isn't an emotion. It's not a warm fuzzy. It's not a nice feeling. It's an act of the will. You choose to do it because it's the right thing to do, because we have been forgiven by God. Sometimes it does take forgiveness to activate some positive emotions, because if we don't forgive, we can be trapped and caught up uh, often people will say that Christians shouldn't be angry, but that isn't scriptural. If we are hurt and wounded, you know what? Anger is how our body responds. It's a natural thing of being physical beings. The Bible, however, does warn against anger leading us into sin, leading us into not forgiving, leading us into bitterness leading us into seeking and enacting revenge, or leading us into not loving our enemies. Rather, forgiveness gives us a place to place our anger. Anger also often motivates people to seek appropriate justice. We find it hard in the biblical passages that talk of Jesus being angry when he enters the temple and cleansing them, but his anger leads him to act in a just manner. Well, I was looking for an inspirational way to finish this message, and I you know, thought I could come up with a wonderful inspirational example, but in the end, all I came up with was Jesus' own words in the prayer that he has taught us. Forgive us our sins. You know, that's really inspirational, that we know that God is faithful and just, gracious and good, and forgives us our sins. And today, you know, as we've asked God to forgive, um, he has. As we ask God to forgive us, he will. He will set us free. Thank God my yesterday's gone. And also, as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, the great love that Jesus has for us, his forgiveness and his amazing grace, that it inspires us to offer that gracious gift to others 
because we have received it in such abundance, such costly, wonderful grace. Let us forgive those who have sinned against us. Amen.